We're in our fourth and final lesson in the book of Ruth, as you know, and I have chosen the very simple title, but profound, Redeemed. You all know that uh, coming up is Valentine's Day next Sunday. And I wish I could, no, I don't really wish, but I want to point out to you, this is not really a romantic story, is it? It, It's not, it, it just doesn't really fit the romance thing that's so much a part of our culture. When I was uh, uh, in India some years ago, I, was, I happened to be there when the Indian Evangelical Mission was having its board meeting and they were selecting missionaries. And I noted that yesterday they were doing the same thing and I was thinking about when I was there. But there was a young couple that was there and wanted to go to the mission field and the, the uh, leader of the board said to them, you know, it might be well for you to wait a year or so so that you can get to know each other better. And I I had a kind of a strange look on my face and uh, he said to me, you know that they've been married less than a week and they have never met before. And all of a sudden I thought to myself, whoa, this is not a bad idea, getting to know each other, this thing. Uh, That's another way of going about marriage that in our culture we don't think about in those terms. But when you come to the text and, and you look at the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, it is not portrayed to us in romantic terms, really. They, they are there in, in that midnight madness that's orchestrated by Naomi. But uh, Ruth doesn't go home with an engagement ring. She goes back with a load of grain. <laughs> and somehow that just doesn't strike me as romantic. And, and then you have this, this ceremony that's carried out in the midst of the, of the city gate. And once again, it, 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 is a, it is a beautiful legal process, but you don't really see the romantic side of it. So you gotta, you're going to have to set aside Valentine's Day, folks. Just push that off to the side and say, this is a really great story about love and marriage, but it's not the kind of story that we in our culture are very uh, used to hearing. Now, we do have to remember uh, chapter 3, the the matchmaking efforts that uh, Ruth took, uh, that's I'm sorry that Naomi took in trying to put uh, Ruth and Boaz together in a somewhat compromising, no altogether compromising set of circumstances, and it would have resulted in normal uh, in the way things normally happened. It would have resulted in a in a union and a marriage. But we would never have seen the kinds of things we see in chapter 4 had that happened. You had two noble people. Ruth, who is asking Boaz to do the noble thing, and that is to, to be her husband and take on those rights and responsibilities that would fall to him. And, and for uh, Boaz to, to uh, take the responsibility that would be his for caring for, for Ruth. So we come to this with this sort of flavor of chapter 3 in our minds of what might have been. And it is really the backdrop against which chapter 4 comes to us and we see the way in which Boaz is going to go about this. Not in the middle of the night, in the cover of darkness, under the covers, but rather in the middle of the of daylight, in the middle of the city, 
with many witnesses who are going to be a part of this. And the end result will be, of course, a marriage and eventually the birth of a son. Well, let's think about a couple of texts before we come to this, because there are a couple of passages that will help us to sort of set the stage for the legal process that's going to take place. One of those comes to us from Leviticus chapter 25. And there it's talking about the redemption of the land. Now, in that chapter, God makes it very clear. The land does not belong to Israel. The land belongs to God. That's why he can throw people out. So in one sense, with all these disputes about who owns the holy land, the answer is always the same. God does. Now, God may toss the inhabitants out on the street, uh, but he is the one who takes people and places them in the land or removes them uh, from it. And so it was very important for the people of God to be linked with this place where God said that he would bring about his blessing uh, upon his people, this land. So it was important that you don't have that situation that so often happens where the rich become richer and the poor become poorer and people become separated from their land. So in order to keep the land always uh, associated with the tribes to which it was given, there was the year of Jubilee. And remember, at that time, the land would always revert back to the one who was the owner of that land. So if someone became poor and had to sell their land, they did not really sell possession of the land. They sold use of the land. And so when you, if you had 20 years left of the use of the land, then you would calculate the sale price for how many years that land could be used and basically how much production you could get from the land. But it was also provided in the law that if someone had sufficient means or if they had a relative who had sufficient means, then that person could come and redeem the land back by paying off the price that was uh, the value of that land for those remaining years. They could buy it back so that it would be in the possession of the family to whom it would ultimately revert in the long term. Now, the difficulty would be that if that family had a death where there were no heirs, then how would the land pass on from one uh, generation to the next if there was a missing generation? And so that led to the whole issue of the Levirate marriage. And you see that in, in uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 25. But you also see it back in Genesis 38 with Tamar, you remember, and Judah where, there, where, they, where uh, Judah has, uh, goes to uh, marry a Canaanite woman, has three uh, Canaanite sons, and the first son is wicked and God takes him. The second son becomes the husband of that, uh, that man's widow, and he is wicked and God takes him. And then Judah doesn't want to take a chance on the third one, so he just holds off. And that's when Tamar dresses like a harlot, and he has, and Judah has relations with her and produces these two kids, one of whom is Perez, who is mentioned in the genealogy in, in our text. So even before the law required it, there was this, there was this matter of the Levirate marriage where a brother or a relative, as we'll see in the law, would come along and take the place of that one who had died so that the inheritance would pass on. So you would have both land 
and a, a, a generation to possess that land, uh, both of those were provided for in the law. While the examples that we see in the Old Testament in those books, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy 25 and in, in uh, Genesis 38, are not a one-to-one correspondence, they at least give us an idea of how that was to work and how God wanted to sustain the generations of his people and also to sustain their possession of the land. And that's the issue that's, in, uh, that's at stake here with uh, Naomi because her husband and her sons have passed away and because in her poverty there was the need to sell the land, then how do you solve this problem? And the law had the solution uh, for it that we see taking place before our eyes in chapter 4. So Boaz uh, comes and has this meeting with the nearest kin. Remember that in chapter 3, Boaz committed to be the redeemer, but only after the, the, uh, cl- the closest kin, who was ahead of him in terms of who would fulfill that duty, only after that person would be given the right to redeem the land and to take Ruth as his wife. So we see that taking place in broad daylight at the city gate uh, that, that is here described for us in chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 8. And, and uh, it's, it's very, very interesting how that comes to, to take place. But he comes, he sits down at the city gate, the uh, the. the Closest kin will come by. He will then call the elders of the city and he will give that nearest kin the opportunity to redeem the land, which you remember he does. He says he will. And then Boaz says to him, now there's another part to this. And that is that you also need to take Ruth as your wife and raise up offspring who would possess the land. That was the straw that broke the camel's back for the nearest kin. And he said, I can't do that. And so he gives his right over to Boaz. And Boaz then will follow through in the next verses to, uh, to legally not only redeem the land, but to marry uh, Ruth and take her as his wife. Now, there's some observations that I think we need to make. One, just take note of how public this process is and compare that to the night before. This is done in broad daylight. No backroom deals, no, no negotiations going on somewhere else. This is done in front of 10 of the elders of the city and it's apparent that there are onlookers who are also witnesses of this event. This takes place in the most public manner possible. And, and that is, of course, a very important thing. And it is what the law would require, that things should be done in that way. Notice the word behold. I noticed it was in, you must have been reading the New American Standard, Tommy, because that's what I see here too. And other texts have it, some don't. But the word is, is there in such a way that it's like, lo and behold. And so here is Boaz he, as, as, as Naomi has said, this man's got this on his mind and he's not going to rest until this matter is settled. He is intent on doing this business today. But he comes and he sits down at the city gate. And I don't know exactly what the population of Bethlehem was, but it wasn't, you know, just a village of two or three huts. This is, this is a, a, a larger town. And, and so there are a number of people passing by. 
And the author just makes this little note to tell us that God is providentially here orchestrating events to bring this to pass. So Boaz sits at the city gate, and lo and behold, who should come by first but that relative, the one that he had spoken about. And then when he says to him, uh, turn aside, friend, sit down here, and the, the translations handle that differently, and, and uh, the Net Bible says, uh, sit down, John Doe. Now, I admit, I don't really like the expression John Doe. It sounds like somebody laying on a slab in a morgue uh, rather than it does a living being. But the point is, you don't, you're not told. It isn't that you don't know who he is. Maybe that's why John Doe is bad. John Doe, I don't know who he is. So-and-so... I know exactly who you are, but I will not call you by name. In other words, it, it, this is, is when you look at the text, seven times in our text, the word name is used. But we are never given the name of old so-and-so. And it's the, it's the author's way of saying, this guy is worried about his future. This guy is worried about his ongoing reputation and inheritance. And the reality is, folks, we don't even know who he was, and he just falls to the cracks of history, looking out for himself, did not solve his problem. So the text makes it clear that this guy is purposely unnamed. The way in which Boaz deals with his nearest kin is fascinating to me. Now, you remember that when Naomi orchestrates this matter, she's going to make the sole issue... Uh, the continuation of the line, the Levirate marriage. And the, the, she's going to make the primary drawing card, as it were, the, the, the thing that sort of makes it go or not go, is what happens under those covers. And, and so she's got to focus on one thing. What's interesting to me is Boaz does not raise the question of marriage until after the issue of property is solved. Isn't that interesting? He goes to the property issue, and I think there are several reasons for that. One of them is that the property issue was easiest for the nearest kin to deal with in a, in a righteous way. In other words, the nearest kin, when he is done, will say, I'll do it, so far as the property is concerned. Now, from the standpoint of that guy, that's not a bad thing, A, it's like leasing, it's like a farmer leasing some adjacent farmland and, and getting the use of the land. And, and oftentimes what they would do is use that land and, and a percentage of the crop would go to the owner of the land. So to have the use, for a farmer to have the use of additional farmland is not a high price to pay when that's fruitful land and you can gain from it. The issue is that when he adds that element, when Boaz adds the element of raising up offspring, then here's what's going to happen. The land is going to go, uh, would have gone to that nearest of kin, and had Naomi no offspring and relatives to possess it, then the nearest kin would have inherited it. So in a sense, what you're doing is leasing land you're going to own, and it's going to be yours in the long term. However, if you go to the second level of producing a son who will live on that land and who will inherit that land, now, now he's thinking to himself, man, I've got to put this kid through college. You know, I've got all of the expenses that it's going to take to raise that child, all of which comes out of my pocket. 
I buy the land, and then he ends up with the land when it's all done. And it's like, you know, I lose all the way around. And so why would I want to do this? That's the way he's thinking. I have, uh, it's going to cost me in the long run. It's not going to be to my gain. It would have been to his gain only to get the land. So in one sense, when Boaz is putting this to him, he's putting it to him in a way that makes it easiest for him to do the right thing. I don't think that Boaz says to him, you know, already committing to Ruth and saying, listen, if this guy doesn't want to follow through, I do. Boaz was willing. You might, some might even say he was eager. But Boaz was willing to follow through with the marriage part, but he doesn't say to him, you don't want to marry this woman, do you? He doesn't bring to him the biggest problem first. He takes him to the easiest issue to solve and it seems to me that he's making it as easy as he can for this man to do what's right. Now, here's the other thing I've been thinking about. He also makes it clear to this nearest kin that he is next in line. It is, the, it is this other kin, then it is him, who, Boaz, who is next in line. And he makes it clear to that nearest kin, if you don't want to do this, I will. So what he has done is he's challenged this guy to do what's right, but he has not arm-twisted him to do so. And he's given him an out if he really doesn't want to. And I think that's all in Ruth's uh, looking out for Ruth's well-being. Would you want Ruth to be married to a man who really never wanted her, but just felt like he was arm-twisted into the marriage? I don't think he does. So he's challenging him to do the right thing. He's making it easy to do the right thing, but he's also saying to him, if you really don't want to do what's right, then I do. And so it seems like Boaz's dealings with him is very much on the up and up. I don't see him leveraging this thing for his own personal gain or ambition, but rather doing it in a way that would be best for that man were he to take the best course of action. The link between the land and the Levirate marriage. Twice in this text, it talks about him raising up the name of him who is deceased on his inheritance. In verse uh, 10, you see that, and also in verse 5. Because it was very important within Israel that you had not only the seed that would continue, but the land that would be there. And here's what I think Boaz, why Boaz is linking these two issues together. Ultimately, if that man is to inherit that land, and we don't know how many years it would be till Jubilee, but if he were to inherit that land and it comes back to him in his ownership, that's going to be his farm. That's going to be where he lives. I think what Boaz is saying is, I want this woman to have a son who will inherit what belonged to his father and, and grandfather, but I want him to grow up on the land that he will inherit. I want him to grow up on that place. Now, to me, that is the broadness and the generosity of Boaz thinking. And so he doesn't want to separate those two. He brings them together, and, and uh, as he does with the nearest of kin. And, of course, he bows out. When you look at these two, then you've got the nearest kin essentially saying, what's in it for me? And when he calculates the cost, he says, I'm out. Now, so far as we know, Boaz saw this as a sacrifice as well. I don't think that Boaz realized where all of this would lead. 
we do because we read the end of the story. So it seems to me that Boaz went into this as a sacrifice as well. But he saw this as servanthood. In other words, this was his way of being obedient to the law. This was his way of being a servant to Naomi and to Ruth. And therefore, he is willing to do it. The nearest of kin sees it only as a sacrifice that's too great. And isn't it something then, the way this ends? It is Boaz who is the one who is in the messianic line. It is Boaz who is the one who is praised and blessed. And oh, what's his name just drops off the pages of history. We don't even know his name, but I got to tell you, he was the loser. And, uh, and I think you see that in the exchange that, that takes place. Well, I have a comment about the sandal exchange, and I, I, I'm, I'm just not quite sure what to make of it. And I'll tell you why. I know that it says it was the custom here. And I don't know whether it's going back to Deuteronomy 25 where there was, remember, the sandal. But in that case, you had two brothers living on the land and you had one brother die and the other was given the chance to to take over and to become the husband of this woman and to raise up offspring. And he declines. And then the elders of the city have a little chat with him. He still declines. Then there's the exchange of the sandal and the spit, right? She spits in his face. So when I see this exchange of the sandal, I guess I read it in the light of Deuteronomy 25. All I say is, I see the sandal. Where's the spit? I mean, it seems like somebody ought to spit in old nearest, what's his name's face. Uh, And so I don't know whether we're told this We're told it for one of two reasons, and I just haven't figured it out yet. One is that this was the way it was legally carried out, and therefore when Boaz goes through this transaction, he fulfills every legal requirement uh, that is is really uh, necessary for this to be an honorable marriage. That may be what the text is saying. It may also suggest, and that's where I'm, I'm agonizing a bit, Is it possible that when it says this is the custom, the way it's become, that originally the way the law had intended it, it would have been the cause of shame? And yet, if people were not regarding the law as they should, now it's just gotten down to a hand your your shoe off and that's the deal. Now, I don't... I, I, can't, I just can't get into the legalities of, in my mind. I can't wrap my mind around what in the world it's about handing your shoe to somebody. I mean, do you say to him, you're a heel, you know, and you, and you whatever? Or what is this, hit the road? You know, a lame excuse? I don't know what, what the thing is about a shoe in a transaction. I just can't get my arms around it. But somehow in this text, it seems to me that Boaz goes through every legal uh, uh, jot and tittle to be sure that this thing is done in a way that is open and, and public and visible for all. Verses 9 through 12, Boaz acquires the land of, of Ruth. Notice in verse 9, it's the acquisition of Elimelech's property. And then uh, you have in, in uh, verse 10, the acquisition of Ruth as his wife. And therefore, the property and the son that will be born, hopefully, at that moment in time, would, would be raised up on his inheritance. Now, the fascinating thing about this, to me, is the witnesses that are there. Now, 
In this first instance in verse 11, what you see is the, the witnesses, and, and actually verse 12 as well, you see that the witnesses would, would include the ten elders, would they not, who have been a part of this legal transaction, and the people of the city who have been, you know, rubbernecking, if you want to put it in those terms. They've seen this transaction going on. They've been watching this go on. And so these are the people who say, we are witnesses. But what's interesting then is they follow through with this statement. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, maybe your house be like the house of Perez. Now remember, that's the child that was born of Judah and Tamar, the Gentile, uh, whom Tamar bore to Judah, Judith through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this woman. They believe that offspring are going to be the result of this union. Remember that she is barren, that Ruth is barren, uh, and, and you'll see that, that the Lord is going to enable her to conceive. So these people see this as honorable. And I guess here's one of the things that I, that I thought about. If the marriage had been consummated by moonlight madness, Allah chapter 3, if the marriage had been consummated then in that way, the people of the town would have been talking. <laughs> There's no question about that. They'd have been whispering about what had happened. But the way this marriage takes place in chapter 4, is it not amazing that the townspeople, the elders of the city, and the people who are witnessing this event, they are praising God and they are pronouncing blessings upon Ruth and upon, Na and upon Boaz and upon this child. And they are looking forward to the fact that God is going to bring great blessing. Uh, there, that to me is the fruit of doing things right, and and so it, it's a, it's a delight for me even to ponder uh, what is taking place in that. Verse thirteen, I'm just going to say, for the moment, married sex and a son in that order. <laughs> now, chapter three, it would have been a little different, and and here what you have is a very clear legal process. And then it really condenses what was probably taking place in, in about a year's time. And then he, they come together uh, as husband and wife, and the result of that is the conception of this child whose name will be uh, Obed. Okay, then you have the blessings that are pronounced by the women. First blessings were pronounced by the elders of the city and by the people who witnessed the marriage transaction. These blessings are pronounced by the women, and now this is as a, as a response to the birth of this child, right? Now they've, now they've married, now there is the birth of this child. The women, for whatever reason, have, have given him the name Obed, which we assume is a word which speaks uh, means servant. And this child is now taken and placed in Naomi's arms. And the, and the women of the town say, Naomi now has a son. Isn't that interesting? Here's the woman who was saying, you know, I went away full and I came back empty. And she's just crying, you know, big crocodile tears about how bad life is. God has given her a son. 
And that son, these, these women of the town see as one who is going to look after her and be a blessing to Naomi. When I looked at the blessing that's pronounced, the first thing I noted, you would expect this of me, but the first thing I noticed is nobody blessed Naomi. There's no, there's no blessing of her. There is the pronouncement of blessing to God for what he has done for her. There is a blessing on the child for what he will do for Naomi. There is a blessing on Ruth for what she will do and has done for Naomi. And there, there's all kinds of blessing. But nobody blesses Naomi. And friends, you don't bless what you read in chapter 1. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Bitter. God's been really rough on me. And, and God has blessed her. But they, I guess what I'm saying is, they don't praise her. They do not praise her. They praise Boaz, they praise Ruth, and they pray for God's blessings. But there's really no pronouncement there. But then I, I got to looking further and I said to myself, you know, this is really even not about Ruth and Boaz. This is about God. This is about God. Look what they say. They say, may the Lord... In verse 11, the elders of the city, make the woman who is coming in your home like Rachel and Leah. Verse 14, blessed is the Lord. See, they're praising the Lord for what he has done for Naomi. Not praising Naomi for what she's done for the Lord. But they're praising God as a result of all these things that have uh, taken place. Naomi then becomes the child's nanny or whatever you want to say that. And the neighbor women name him Obed. And then we're given this uh, genealogy, which takes the, the, uh, the genealogy from Judah, that is, Perez, who has come. Interesting that they would focus on that and even pronounce their blessing and say, may your house be like the house of Perez. These people understood genealogies better than we do. And they were looking at this situation and saying, here is a Gentile woman who is being married to a, gen, to a Jewish man. And they're saying, where have, we se- where have we seen that before? And they're going back and they're saying, here it is. God used this union to bring about the, the bringing down of the messianic line and bringing down blessing. And they now look at this and they say, this is a similar situation. And so they purposely, rather than avoiding the subject, they call attention to the fact here, look here what's happened. And, and uh, God is bringing his blessing in these ways. So it goes from Perez on down to David. And as you know, this is the story about the time of the judges when there was no king in Israel. <laughs> and this is God's way of bringing about the king in spite of what looked like impossible circumstances. All right, I want to, if you, I think, did I put things? I did. In your notes, you will see a blank. And the reason is because I took all of those off and changed my mind about what I was going to say in application. So you will see it uh, on the screen better than you will see it in your notes. A, about the law. We will never understand Judges or Ruth until we have a proper understanding of the Old Testament law. And and dispensationalists, among others, need to be very careful because there is a way in which they will latch on the phrase, uh, we are under grace, not under law, which is, of course, true. But 
we ought never to conclude that it is the law that is the problem. In other words, when he says we're under grace and not under law, I think you could maybe even say better, we are under grace, not under legalism. The law is a beautiful thing, and I think you would say even here, the law is grace. The law was being gracious to Naomi. The law was being gracious to Ruth. It was the means by which God would show his grace toward those in need. And so the law is really gracious. It is legalism that is the problem. And I see in Boaz a man who delighted in God's law. Not in a legalistic way. The law was suggestive. The law pointed in the right direction. But he went beyond the law. And he understood the heart of the law. That's why I think he linked the the genealogical line with the possession of property. That's why he went above and beyond the call of duty here. And I think it's why he doesn't press the nearest kin too hard. He does not want the nearest kin to legalistically fulfill his duty. He wants him to joyfully fulfill his duty. And if he can't, then, as Boaz says, he's there to carry it out. The book of Judges, it it ends with that repeated expression. And there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Deuteronomy chapter 12 makes it clear. Living according to what's right in your own eyes is doing what is disobedient to God's law. It's disregard for the law. Because that's called doing what's right in God's eyes. So all of this is about man's disregard, all of Judges in particular, is about man's disregard for the law. What we find in Ruth is the beauty of a man who delights in the law. And we come to the end of this not with our teeth gritted, but saying, what a wonderful, beautiful thing this is, that he has followed the law uh, to the extent that he has, and it has brought about grace. The problem with the law is not what it requires. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the law is holy and righteous and good. He says, I in my inner man, I as a believer, I want to do what the law says. I want to avoid what the law prohibits. The problem is not the law, the problem is sin. And the other problem is the weakness of my flesh. While I want to do it, sin is more powerful in my flesh. But it's not the law that's wrong. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 8, those who walk in the Spirit will be empowered to do those things that are the requirements of the law. So the law is a beautiful thing, and I think we see that in in our text pretty clearly. He loved the law. This text is about God. In fact, Judges and Ruth is really about God. That I saw... As I came to the conclusion, it finally dawned on me that in terms of the praises that the people are offering, these are praises to God. Yes, Boaz was a wonderful man, a man of principle and a man of character, and Ruth was a noble woman. But these people saw beyond that, and they saw this as the work of God, that this was his blessing that was being brought about, his fulfillment of his covenant promises. Uh, The other thing I noticed in this is the fulfillment of God's purposes and promises are not dependent upon our performance, but upon God's power and God's character. Is that not right? 
When you look at the book of Judges and you see these year after year go on of men disregarding God's law and you see what happens, if men were left of their own devices, folks, there would have been no messianic line. There would have been no blessing if blessing was contingent upon what we do. Now, it's not to say that we can do anything we want. Because there are consequences, as we see in the life of Elimelech and Naomi, in the lives of those in the book of Judges. There are painful consequences for disregarding God's word. But in the final analysis, the reason why the Messianic line is preserved, the reason why David will come as the promised uh, king, and why the Lord Jesus will come as the promised Messiah, and all of God's purposes and promises to his people will be fulfilled, is because God is a God who keeps his covenant promises. That was the thing that Moses could cling to in Exodus 32 when Israel has at the foot of that mountain bowed down to a golden calf. He doesn't say they'll do better. He doesn't say they tried hard. What he does say is, God, you made a promise. And you are God. This text is about God and his faithfulness and that is why we'll come to the book of 1 Samuel, uh, because it is God. Ruth ends in, in praise. I said it's about God, but it's, it really is in praise. And, and here's the thing I want you to notice. It suddenly occurred to me in the book of Ruth how much the piety of one man, and, and add to that, of one woman. But how much the piety of one man has impacted a city. Now, when you come to chapter 1, you see Naomi coming back and and whatever and and talking about how bad God was. But in chapter 2, you remember when, when Boaz comes out to his field, he pronounces a blessing on the people. I think he says, may the Lord be with you. And they say to him, may the Lord bless you. Boy, they didn't know how much that was going to happen. But what I'm trying to say is, I think when you look at the period of the judges and in the wicked, at the wickedness of all of these cities within Israel and whatever, we not only see one righteous man, Boaz, a man of valor, a mighty man of valor, and a man of faith, and a man who loves the law, we see a city, a city that somehow is responding to him in a way that is not typical Israel. Would you not say that? I mean, there's a hint of that in chapter 2 when they say, you know, in effect, may the Lord bless you. But now when you see this marriage that takes place in chapter 4, here is a Moabite woman, and the Moabites are the enemies of Israel. Here is a Moabite woman who has come and married a a Jewish man, and these people are praising God for what they see. And what I'm suggesting to you is the faithfulness and the godliness of a few people impact an entire city. Now, there may have been other godly, faithful people. I don't know who they were. What we do know is we know about Boaz and we know about Ruth. But this whole city is praising God. And I'm saying, folks, this is during the period of the judges. When people did what was right in their own eyes, when they disregarded the law, they respond to this marriage and they say, here's a man who does it right. Here's a man who has done what the law says. May God bring his blessings upon him and may God be praised for what he's done. This is a God-praising city. 
I don't, I don't yet hear those words from Naomi, but I hear them from the city. And, and it says to me, you know, in our day and time, there is a way in which we're tempted to say, well, what can I do? What can I do in Richardson? What can I do anywhere? You can live a godly life in a way that honors him and people do notice. And people can praise God for what they have seen in the lives of his people. Think about what it would be like if all of us were living the kinds of lives we ought to live. What would the people in our neighborhood think? What would the people in our community, in our city, think about God? It seems to me that there is an impact that takes place in Ruth where it is God who is the star of the show and he is the subject of men's praise and it's because godly people have lived their lives in a godly way. I think I'll stop with this one. The crises of Ruth are the crises of today. I mean the crises of this week. Are they not? The crisis of death. The crisis of childlessness crisis of whether or not there will be heirs, the crisis of an economy that is limping at best, all of these things are the things that we read about in the book of, 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 of Ruth. And these become the setting, the stage, as it were, from which God is going to manifest his power and his grace. And the things as it were, the things for which Naomi is almost cursing God in chapter 1 are the things that we see in chapter 4 that become the basis for people praising God. God turned darkness into light. He turned impossible situations into something that was a blessing. He turned death into life. And that's what they say in this, in this end pronouncement. Those people recognize what God has done. And in effect, when these women are pronouncing that blessing around Naomi, I think it is their gentle way of saying, and by the way, Naomi, I think I'd find where I wrote those things down in chapter 1 and tear them out. You were wrong. That's really what they're saying to her. You were wrong. All of those things that you assessed as meaning it's going to go this way. It's like Jacob when his son, finally Benjamin, remember, has to go down. Not only Joseph is he lost in his mind, but now Benjamin. And he says, all of these things are against me. <laughs> no, they weren't. As Joseph said, all of these things were the hand of a sovereign God bringing about his salvation. Obviously, we can see the connection between uh, Boaz as the kinsman redeemer and our Lord Jesus Christ. At man's lowest moment, in his deepest hour of need, or hers, when they have, in effect, no place and no provision, it is the redeemer who comes along and meets every need. By the way, you know that the, the goal, the, re, the goel, the redeemer, not only was the one who, who had the opportunity to provide and sustain the family, he was also, as it were, the uh, angry uncle who was the, uh, the one who got blood. In other words, he was the police force too. You mess with a family, you deal with him. He protects <laughs> and he provides. That's what our Lord Jesus is.
He has come to us in our desperate need. He has become one of us, a kinsman. That's the incarnation. That's what the bread is about on the Lord's table. And he has taken our place. He has borne the penalty for our sins. And he has redeemed. And this is just a, just a little prototype of what our Lord is going to do. But it's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament that points us to God and to his salvation in the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the grace that you have shown to us. How grateful we are that your purposes and promises in the final analysis rest with you and not with us. Thank you that you give us the opportunity to participate in the things that you are doing. May we be people who love your law in the sense of delighting to do what is best and loving in serving you and in serving our neighbor. If there's anyone here apart from the Lord Jesus, we pray that you might draw them to him. In Jesus' name, amen.